spend the time. Give yourself, when I did Body Bookworms, when I first launched Crickets, and I thought, oh my God, this is such a great idea. And people were saying, this is a great idea. And I didn't take the time to do the marketing and I'm building the community like I should have. So I gave myself a do-over. And then I said, I'm going to give myself one year and see where this goes. Like one year of really working on it, not trying to do 10 million things at once or starting another business on the side and see where it goes. You're listening to Chief Executive Auntie, the podcast exploring the work lives of Asian Americans beyond the conventional doctor, lawyer, and engineer. I'm your host, Jennifer Duan Faltz. Hi, everybody. Quick uh, advisory if by the off chance you are listening to this with small children, uh, we are probably going to be discussing sex and pleasure and all those wonderful things today. So just in case you don't want your kids or if you don't want to listen to it, um, you may want to skip this particular episode. But my guest today is Tian Kim Lam. She is the founder of Body Bookworms, a subscription box that pairs sexy, steamy romances with sex toys, lotions, lubes, and other fun things. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I'm super curious what an average workday looks like for you. (laughs) My average workday is not exciting at all. I'm, uh, I'm a mother of two. I work from home. This is my side hustle. So it's me trying to balance, not balance, because I think that's a not a an accurate term, but there's no such thing as right, <laughs> right. It's it's a false. Is juggling everything and making sure that I still have time to be here for my family and ha- have time for myself. So it's a lot of working at the computer, reading books. Actually, I read. I actually read books uh, outside of my work hours. So I have set work hours for myself, um, but it kind of bleeds into it. But the thing is that I already enjoy doing reading romances, so it's not a hardship. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, what is your kind of what is your work schedule typically if there is such thing as a typical day? Sure. Uh, I can give you a drill down of an average day. My my kids are uh, I have a teenager and a tween. So oh, it's God a little bit you. easier. <laughs> <laughs> when they were toddlers, you know, I was also working from home. I started off as a parenting blogger and I'd worked a lot of nights, what people jokingly call the third shift, because I would be parenting during the day. They weren't in school yet and then working at night. But now that they're older, they're in school, I've transitioned to a more traditional, more or less work day. Uh, my husband does all the morning things with the kids. He makes sure they pack lunches and get out the door for school and I get to sleep in, which works out because I'm usually up late working. Um, but I, I get up in the morning, make my coffee, sit down. I have a, I'm a huge planner person. I have a paper planner. I, uh, I try to do like, I do, um, what do they call it? Uh, like time blocking. Yeah. So I try to yeah. do time blocking and I have my various projects depending on the day and it's all listed out. Like what, what client I'm working with, what projects I'm doing, how much time do I spend on my business? Are there deadlines? So I plan all accordingly. And that's from about nine until three o'clock. My daughter gets home from school around 3.30. I like to be there for her. And then I pick up my son from school at four. And then, you know, at three 3.30 on, it's all parenting. 
Mm -hmm. dinner, homework, bedtime. And usually I try to stop working around three so that I can spend time relaxing, unplugging and and hanging out with my husband. I like to stay married. I always joke. We've been together. Yeah, we've been together a very long time. And and he doesn't mind like he has been he's been a great cheerleader for me. So he's not the kind of guy that's like, you're working too much. Like I want more time for me. He's like, whatever you want to do, I'm here for you. I'm going to support you. And I don't want to take advantage of that. Right. Because it's easy for us working at home to spend more hours on work than everything else, because it's there. My office is, is in a nook in my kitchen. You can see the mess, but behind me is my, the recycling and laundry center. And then over here is the kitchen. So it's, it's hard to actually like shut the door because I don't have a door. Mm-hmm. Um, so I try to set pretty, uh, pretty strong boundaries of when I work and when I don't work so that I have a more balanced uh, life. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in the same boat. Um, my husband has quote unquote, the real job, right. And with the benefits and the health insurance, um, but I run the household in the meantime, and that's kind of, I bring the flexibility. Um, I was just talking to a friend whose daughter was sick from school. She just started a new job. She doesn't have any leave yet. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's why I didn't go back to work full time, <laughs> to be able to have that. Um, it sounds like you you mentioned clients. Do you have, um, what kind of client work do you do? I do social media marketing for creative. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So I manage our social media, help them strategize, things like that. Neat. Neat. And how long have you been kind of in this freelance space? Oh, my goodness. I would say I started my, I have a parenting blog called I'm Not the Nanny. And I started that in 2009. And I was blocking full time for quite a while and then transitioned to working with clients and doing freelance writing. Cool. Um, and when you say blogging full time, like earning income from your blog? Yes, I was earning a, a pretty good income. I stepped back to uh, work for a nonprofit for a couple of years just to kind of help them get sorted out. And then just decided to, that I miss being my own boss <laughs> and came back to, uh, you know, freelance writing. And I wanted to, my kids were older, so I don't want to write as much about their lives because it's yeah. their life now, yeah. right? And that's when I started um, started working with clients to do their social media and and strategy. Yeah, I mean, I look, I have some, I go through some of my pictures from college, and like, I was like baking and taking pictures of the crap I was making, like before lifestyle blogging was a thing. And I'm like, man, if I had known that was an option, I totally would be like rolling in it by now. But I, you know, went to grad school like a good Asian and, you know, did all did all the things I was actually not even that because I went to grad school to be a high school teacher. <laughs> my parents were like, what? You want to do what now? Well, I was a theater major. My parents were not happy. Oh. <laughs> so definitely have been non-traditional all the way, but I'm the eldest. So I'm the oldest per, uh, kid in the family. So there's a lot of guilt and uh, personal pressure to do something more traditional. And how, how'd you resist it? How did you well, feel? I tried to double major when I started college. <laughs> <laughs> the Asian solution for everything. Right? Double I can, major. I can do it everything if I just don't sleep and drink lots of coffee. 
but I did not enjoy the my major. And I think it, it was just the school I chose for that major. It wasn't the right direction that I want to I was interested in computer programming and web design but that wasn't really a thing yet this was I'm gonna date myself I'm that was in 1997 <laughs> and the only major at that college was uh like a like a business oriented yeah. so I'm like I don't want to learn about databases and and take business classes which you know looking back I should have taken all those <laughs> business classes right <laughs> um and I just really like the creativity of theater. I thought I wanted to be an actress, but I'm, you know, I'm a curvy woman. I'm short. I don't dance. I sing okay. Like, I'm never going to become an actress. <laughs> and uh, especially because back then, the only big option was to do Miss Saigon, which is totally problematic uh, in itself. So many problems. Right, right. And so, and I, then I found I really liked the creativity of costuming. So I got into costuming, learning how to draw. So like, you know, make something out of like little scraps of paper that really appealed to me, not paper, um, scraps of fabric on a really mm -hmm. low budget because we were a small college. And that's what I majored in. And I spent, you know, how many years? Several years working in theater space and costumes. Cool. And what college did you go to? I went to a really small state school in Louisiana called Northwestern State University. It's in a, the town is called Natchitoches and it's where they film Still Magnolias. I don't know if people still watch that. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> and uh, did you grow up around there? I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So okay. in a, outside in a very small rural town, we're the only Asian family in the whole That uh, was going to be my next question. <laughs> I feel like no matter where you are, except with the exception of like California and New York City, like no matter where you are, you're the only Asian family around, or it feels like you're the only Asian family around. We literally were like the only we literally Asian were family, my sister and I, <laughs> and we were totally the Asian stereotypes, like quiet, shy, nerdy. We did really well in school. You know, we people got mad because we you know ruined the curve, the grading curve. <laughs> <sighs> but um, so going back to how did I eat like convince my parents that I would <laughs> so I really broke all the rules you know it's funny because people laugh and say I ended up dating a, a quote-unquote bad guy right you know your parents don't want you to date the bad guy well he was bad because he his skin was the wrong color mm -hmm. and once that started coming out I mean basically <laughs> I had done the worst possible so like <laughs> Why not major in theater? Why not, you know, run off and do summer theater in some small podunk town in New York? <laughs> you know, um, and they, things did not go well when they found out about my, my boyfriend, now husband. And basically it gave me the agency to do whatever I wanted because they weren't going to improve anyway. It's a bold choice. I would recommend it for everybody. It was a tough period of time. <laughs> yeah. You know what though? I kind of, Similar thing, I made a lot of really crappy dating decisions. <laughs> and so by the time I brought my husband around to them, they were like, oh, thank God he's not like <laughs> 20 years older with three kids or whatever. <laughs> so pro tip, kids, just, just do the worst possible thing your parents can imagine and then everything else is cake after <laughs> If you don't like completely destroy the relationship in the meantime. Right. I mean, if you like confrontation, that's definitely the way to go. Right. Um, my parents are not great at confrontation and, and uh, you know, me not having the role models for that was not good at 
um, with it either either back then. But they've come around. So, you know, I was that I said I have a, a teen and a tween. My, I've been with my husband for over 20 years and, you know, we all get along. They love him. They love the grandkids. So it all worked out. Wasn't painless, but it worked out. It was not painless <laughs> at all. <laughs> I would not wish that on anyone. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you get the idea for body bookworms and how did it get started? Okay, this is fun. I've been reading romance books since I was in middle school, too young to be reading about sex. In books. <laughs> but I was curious, right? When you're that age, your hormones are going crazy. And you ain't gonna you know. ask your parents about it. Well, especially my parents are, are immigrants, right? I'm uh, first generation. And I'm not gonna talk to them about sex. Our sex talk was don't get pregnant and don't get married until you're 35. Not the most practical advice there, right? right. No uh, dating until you're married. What? Yeah, like, huh, how do you do that? Um, so I, I turned to magazines and books to learn about sex. And I really like romance because the women always got what they wanted. They found love. They found men who knew what they wanted and gave them what they wanted. I thought about it that way. Yeah, so not, not huh. only in life, but letting them follow their dreams, but, you know, in bed, in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. and, and I was drawn to them, these happy endings and, and, you know, especially not knowing that I wasn't allowed to date. <laughs> I could read these books. And in college, after college, I was uh, looking for ways to earn extra money. And I had remember going to a sex toy party in college. And I thought this is really cool. Like I'm learning all this, these things about my body and like, really, it's really fun. So I started selling the, the products. I went to my friends' homes and their friends' homes. And I talked about different toys. And what I found I love besides the research and development part of that job was that I got to educate women about their bodies. I was learning about like, hey, what what I'm going through is normal. The challenges I'm facing, my interests, you know, are normal. So why not like tell other women about it? Because there's no pleasure education for, mm -hmm. for women, you know, anywhere you know, in our in our system growing up, unless you have very liberal parents. And I think now with the internet, there's more resources for, for um, younger people. But I think for a lot of us, you know, who are adults now, we didn't have that, that background. Yeah. We kind of had think to... We're, yeah. And I think we're, even, even with all the information that's available, I think we are still conditioned to think like, you know, I don't matter. Like my experience doesn't matter in this and every, everything from, and everything from sex to parenting, like, you know, everyone's like, Oh, as long as you have a healthy baby, I'm like, no, like my birth experience kind of sucked and nobody wants to hear about that. They just want to hear about the positive things. So I think that's great that I, I, I never thought about the, I never thought about it that way of like romance is about women getting what they want. I love that. Yeah, I mean, I see romance as a genre. It's it's a feminist because it's written mostly by women, yeah. mostly for women, and yeah. that's why it gets you know uh, people talk about it the way they do. They calling it bodice rippers and mommy porn, and because it's not, it's really hard to write a romance because there are certain expectations, and as someone who's read a lot of romances, they're not all created equal. Right. Um, and to do it well, you have to know your craft and you have to know uh, how to write people. And for me, I'm always looking for diverse romances. So you have to be able to to do that well. 
And you are doing some writing now, aren't you? Yourself? Yes, yes. I've been uh, been writing romance for the last few years, and I just signed with a literary agent. So that's, yay! That's so exciting. I know, I know, and it doesn't happen overnight. Although it feels like everything with my agent work, uh, you know, came together super fast. But I've been writing since writing romance since I want to say twenty twelve. Yeah. Yeah. And did you like self-publish any of that or how, you know, how did you kind of get the word out about that? I have not self-published. I did have a a short story in the Best Women's Erotica Volume 3 anthology, which is, it's, erotica is different from romance because it's, it's purely written for arousal purposes, right? But, you know, it's done well. Um, the editor, Rachel, she is a fantastic editor and she puts, she curates a great anthology because if you're always saying like, would I be interested in spanking? You know, that sounds scary. Let me read this story. If the story turns you on, then maybe you're like, okay, I could try it out. And if you're like, nope, that's not for me, then you don't have to like ask some random person or your partner or have that awkward <laughs> conversation with your partner and say, could you spank me tonight? <laughs> And, make, and then they have to deal with the fallout if you don't like right. it. Right. I think it's a good conversation starter when yeah. you try to explore fantasies and figure out what you like and don't like. Yeah. And yeah, that, that so that was my first sense. published short story. And and hopefully, you know, I'll have something longer out in the world soon. Cool. Cool. Okay. So going, sorry, I got, we got sidetracked with the publishing bit. So going back okay. to kind of the body bookworms. Right. So genesis. I did sex toy parties. So I, um, you know, sold par- uh, toys at parties for, for 12 or 13 years and kind of scaled back when my kids got older because I, I did uh, most of them were on weekends and in the evening. So yeah. I kind of missed that time for my family. And I pulled back a little bit because it became more about the sales and less about the education. Mm-hmm. And one day I was reading a romance book, you know, and I said, you know, like, why don't people talk about like how you can get off after you read these toys? Because someone, I mean, read these books because they're really hot. And that's when the light bulb went off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm using my knowledge from you know, sex toys and women's pleasure, and then my love for romance books and kind of putting them together. I call them pleasure pairings. It's like wine, but a right. lot more exciting, <laughs> a lot more interactive. I mean, you could all, I mean, you could with a bottle. Well, never mind. <laughs> there, I could recommend a couple of books with that. <laughs> uh, but part of the, part of my box is also g- giving people uh, tips on how to use the toys and to talk about what they're for. We have a private Facebook community called Body Bookworms Insiders. And we talk about those things because toys come with instructions that are kind of look like Ikea instructions. They're yeah. not very informative. <laughs> Sometimes you don't even know how to turn them on. And I try to kind of d- break that down in the box inserts. And sometimes I'll do unboxings in our Facebook group and just kind of, sh- you know, show them how the toy works, how to turn it on, why I think it's a good toy, what, who, who it, whom it might work for, that kind of thing. Because toys are very personal. Everybody um, likes different things. So they should yeah. all be, we shouldn't all be, be using the same toys. Right. Well, not, and literally not the same toys because that's unhygienic. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I really love the education and empowerment piece behind this. Do you find I'm curious, like when you were selling, um, when you were uh, when you were selling the sex toys, you know, what was the response? What was a what was the response you would get from people? And B, 
um, did you reach out to other Asian Americans? Like, were you selling to other Asian Americans or what, or like kind of what, who was your market for that? Those are good questions. When I, how do people react? Usually in the social situations, people would be very fascinated, either very fascinated or immediately panicked. <laughs> <laughs> so I learned how to gauge the group before yeah. bringing it up. Um, but at when I when I did go to do the um, in home shows, you know, a lot of people, uh, most of my customers back then were straight cisgender, you know, women, mm-hmm. cisgender women, and they were like, "I'm here to buy toys for my husband, my boyfriend, you know, whatever," because they thought that the toy should be for his pleasure, right? Mm. And I think it's how just we're trained as a society. Mm-hmm. Everything is very male-centered, right, and pleasure. And we talked about, like, well, you know, if you're not having fun, like, what's the point? Yeah. And, you know, I, I would talk about things like most women have a hard time having an orgasm through penetration only. And that was a huge light bulb for a lot of my clients. And even for me, when I first learned that, you know, and I think that was a great starting point. Say, this is totally normal, right? We're not Yeah, I think normalization is super important too. Right. I mean, I had met, I I remember meeting this woman. She had three kids and was pregnant with her fourth one. She had never had an orgasm. Oh, that makes me so sad. (laughs) And her friends were like, you have to get something. And and for me, it's not just like buying, like you don't need a toy to have an orgasm. Right. right? I mean, hands do a really great job. Um, so that for me, like that wasn't the purpose of me doing it was to talk about like, hey, you really have to take the time to explore. And her partner was also wanted to help her. But I thought like her husband, like you've, how many kids do you have? <laughs> and you haven't. You, know, you can't out. put it the onus on just your wife, right? Right. If you're in a, a relationship, a long term relationship, it, it's it's both sides, right? Um, but you know, I that wasn't an uncommon mm. situation, right? Um, and where I lived, so I was living in Central New York at the time, with not a huge Asian population. So my audience, my audience there was mostly white uh, and black women. And when I moved to the D.C. area and I started doing more shows, I had a lot of I didn't do any like specifically Asian sure. um, um, shows, but there were, you know, diverse groups and stuff. And I find that now that I'm older, I do want to kind of talk about that more like being Asian and talking about sex is huge taboo. Yeah. And not only taboo within our own culture, but I I feel like the white gaze upon Asian women in terms of sexuality can also be hugely problematic. Um, I don't know, you know, like Miss Saigon, for example. Right. We're either a whore, right? Right. Or Or like some like submissive little doll. Um, I, I mean, do you experience, what's your experience like working in, you know, I guess basically the sex adjacent industry as an Asian American woman, like. I've been really lucky and I've surrounded myself with mostly women, uh, you know, people uh, and they, they get it. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I found other communities uh, 
I don't know if you've heard of um, the Cosmos. I think that's mm-hmm. what we yeah. connected, right? I think so. Yeah, and they, you know, the 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 founders are like really embraced me and what I was doing, and I felt I felt really good about that because I've never growing up in a a very small southern town. I didn't have a, that built-in Asian community around me, except for my family, which I could never still to this day talk about sex with my family. That was going to be one of my next questions. <laughs> I mean, I can I can probably do a keynote about women's pleasure, but you put me in the room with my family. I'm back to, you know, good old, good old Tin Kim. You know, the the nice daughter and and niece. <laughs> I think that regression is so common. <laughs> I think you have to pick your battles, especially with family, sure. because they're not going anywhere. Right? And you have to decide what's what's worth, um, what makes the conflict worth it. And for yeah. me, that, that isn't. And my parents, are, you know, they're they're getting old now, and and it's not necessary. I think I've, yeah. we've gone through enough with me marrying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, do you talk to your kids about what you do? Not specifically. Um, my kids know. So my youngest is 10 and my oldest is, oh my gosh, look, I'm, I'm bad at math right now. <laughs> it's 14. And my oldest and I, we do talk about sex a little bit as, mu- as much as she's comfortable. I try to sure. let her kind of lead the conversation. Yeah. Uh, but for my youngest, he's just so oblivious about everything. Like I tried to talk to him about puberty and he, he kind of freaked out because he's like, I don't want that to happen to my body. (laughs) So, well, I just want you to know in case things start, you know, hair starts growing in weird places. (laughs) Uh, But they do know that I write, I'm that I'm one, I'm writing romance that my box includes romance books and that, you know, when they were younger and I was still selling toys and in-home shows, I said, you know, I sell products to make mommies and daddies happy and stay married. And I think that's a pretty good explanation. Yeah, when you're five or six, that's all you need to know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. I have a I have a small child preschool right now. And like, I don't want him to grow up with the same like shame that I grew up with. But I also like... But you got to you got to put that away right now. Like this is the dinner table. (laughs) Like if you want to do that, you got to go to your room or to the bathroom, not in front of other people. Please don't do that at school. Like, (laughs) yeah, you're right. Like normalizing the conversation. Like if you like that, that's totally awesome. It feels good. I understand. But there are certain places that are appropriate and not appropriate. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That we try to keep it in terms of like appropriate non-appropriate not like good or bad or right. dirty or whatever like not that I don't know if he understands appropriate or not I think he does though I think he understands like you know he, he can understand like this is how we do things at school this is how we do mm-hmm. things at home um I have to do that with language sometimes too because I can't control my own potty mouth oh <laughs> you're like so we have bathroom words now <laughs> I see. Now that my kids are older, I definitely let the uh, curse words fly more than when they were younger. But I think for me, I didn't have a model Mm. to know how to talk about these things with my kids, right? It was just talking to other moms 
And I'm lucky to have a, a really good friend who's Asian and she has kids and, and her kids are a couple years older than mine. So she's going through everything before me and I can be like, so how like, let me take some, this? let me take some notes. <laughs> um, so I think that's helpful is that trying to yeah. find your, your uh, inner circle to help you with those things. And then having friends yeah. who are Asian and can understand you know, how different it is for us to even be talking to our kids about masturbation, especially when they're at a young age, uh, which is, I think it is important, important because, you know, like you said, we don't want to make them feel shame for doing something that's totally normal. Yeah, definitely. So do you have any advice for other Asian Americans who want to start their own business, start their own side hustle, whether or not that's in whether or not that's in the sex <laughs> sex area or not. I think as a, you know, I joke that I'm a type Asian overachiever that I love new projects and I get ideas all the time. And it's like, you know, this is so shiny. Let me go over here. Whatever your idea is, take the time to work on it and give it time to grow. Mm -hmm. I think it's easy, especially with all the coaches on the internet, you know, the business coaches and the people saying, oh, this happened to me. I made six figures in one year. And what they don't tell you that how long it took them to get there and how hard mm -hmm. it is or what did they sacrifice? Right. So, you know, spend the time. Give yourself when I did Body Bookworms, when I first launched crickets and I thought oh Aww. my god this is such a great idea and people were saying this is a great idea and I didn't take the time to do the marketing mm. and I'm building the community like I should have so I gave myself a do-over and then I said I'm going to give myself one year and see where this goes like one year of really working on it not trying to do 10 million things at once or starting another business on the side and see where it goes it's hard it's it's very tempting right because when you're creative, you have a lot of awesome ideas. And after that, that year period, I gave myself like, I can see this going somewhere. Let me keep pushing. And that was, you know, I think I've, I have to do, I'm so bad at keeping track of things. I think this will be my fourth year in business. And I'm growing steadily. And I'm happy where things are going. But if I had given up earlier or I have split my energy into doing something else, I wouldn't be where I was today. I would feel like I failed. And mm -hmm. as an overachiever, I hate the feeling of, fa I mean, everyone hates failing, but I think for me, I'm particularly hard on myself about everything. And that might've, you know, I felt at this business, how can I create another one? And I think that that's what happens when people want to start business. They don't give it enough time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am much better at starting things than finishing them. Maybe pun intended. I don't know. <laughs> But that's been a lesson I've had to learn too. Is like, pick one, pick one thing, give it enough time to breathe and actually like get off the ground if it's going to get off the ground. Um, I also tend to run after things, run after new things immediately. <laughs> so that's awesome. That is awesome advice that I will probably just need to like tattoo on my forehead. I put a file <laughs> on Evernote. Every time I get a cool idea, I add it to the file. And I tell myself, just because I'm not doing it right away doesn't mean I'm giving up on this idea, right? Because we all have seasons in our in our lives where we do yeah. things. And yeah. maybe, you know, maybe when you're, you're done focusing on this or I've grown the business enough where I can step back a little bit, I can pick one of those other things and spend more time on that and build that. Yeah, 
that's that's a really good idea. That's a really good idea to have a list of ideas. Right. And you're telling um, yourself you're not giving them up, right? It's just there. You're saving it. When you write them down, I tell myself, I'm not giving up on this idea. I'm just saving it for later. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the hard part because you think if I don't do it right now, I'm going to lose the momentum and the excitement. But I think as creatives, it's, if you're really excited about it in two months, three years, yeah. then it's meant to be for you. To yeah. Work. Yeah. If it's yes, if it is something that you come back to, um, that's been a good practice for me, too, is just like, you know what, that is a good idea. Just like sit on it for a minute and see if you're still interested next week. <laughs> because I come up with new stuff all the time. I st- I've started like 17 businesses in my head, none of which oh, I would sure. actually be, none of which I would actually be any good at doing. <laughs> and I just want to add a second thing to that sure. is that yeah, you focus on this but don't sacrifice your life mm-hmm. to work on it. Like don't work 20 hours a day on it. You know, make time for other things because then you grow as a person and mm-hmm. it makes you a better entrepreneur. Yes. Yes, definitely. Well, thank you so much. Um, Where can people catch up with you online? Sure. I'm at bodybookworms.com. And we also have our Facebook group called Body Bookworms Insider. You can request an invite. You know, we talk about our favorite sex toys, favorite romance books, and whatever you want to talk about. Eye candy, hot men, hot women. Awesome. Cool. I'll drop those in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Chief Executive Ante. You can find show notes, resource links, and more Ante rants at chiefexecutiveante.com. That's chiefexecutiveauntie.com. Special thanks to Sue Ann Shaw, who mixed and mastered this episode and composed the music, Alyssa De La Rosa, who created the branding, and my distribution partner, Mochi Magazine. Check out more stories for Asian American women at www.mochimag.com. That's M-O-C-H-I-M-A-G.com. See you next time.